Isn't it great to be here this morning, this first day of the week, that we could assemble and gather in a way that we trust and hope surely is pleasing to God. It's our desire to always worship Him in spirit and in truth, to borrow the words of John 4, 24. And today, as I look over the audience, certainly we're blessed with a host of individuals that have perhaps Mother's Day on your mind or you wish to honor and respect your mother. Along with Brother Gary, I think it'd be very appropriate to wish a happy Mother's Day to each and every mother in our audience. What a great influence you've had on so many. What a profound and great consideration you have made in the lives of so very many of your children as well as others. We do want each to have a very pleasant Mother's Day today. In fact, part of the lesson will, in one way at least, bring all of us to reflect a bit upon the very thought of what mothers are so often thought of. May I also say, of course, that we have just finished our gospel meeting. We, of course, drew that to a close Thursday night. The congregation here did such a tremendous job in attendance. I'd like to compliment you on that. Our elders would wish to share that particular sentiment with you. The attendance that you regularly brought in regard to it was such an encouragement, not only to each of us individually, but certainly it helped us to appreciate that which is the proclamation of the Word of God. Certainly we're thankful for the sister congregations that supported us and encouraged us in that way. Willow Avenue, of course, Brother Jeremiah's home congregation was very notably often in attendance and certainly they're so highly to be commented as well for that. Living sacrifices. You probably noticed in the lesson text a moment ago from the opening two verses of Romans chapter 12. If you have your Bibles open to that place, you certainly can leave it there. We'll be discussing a number of features from those two verses as we move through the lesson this morning. These opening thoughts perhaps are well to be observed, or at least things that can so readily come to our mind. When you think of the word sacrifice, or perhaps the word offering, each one of them seemingly occurs so very often in the Bible. I've even tallied a few occurrences. 339 times the word sacrifice or some form of it occurs in the sacred word of God in, in the King James translation. Among those particular occurrences, I've only chosen to list two. You and I remember in Proverbs 21, 27, it was there affirmed that the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. Doesn't that immediately bring before your mind and mind the impressive greatness of understanding how we ought never to think we can be wicked and suppose that God will accept what we have to offer Him? He expects a life that mimics holiness and a life that in fact is one that gives the appreciation of godliness and direction. In Hebrews 13, 15, in fact, far along in the New Testament, we again are reminded that even the sacrifice of our lips is such that we're able to praise and offer to God the sacrifice which is available therein. What about the word offering? You'll notice it's used almost a thousand times. Suffice it to say, these two and the rapid occurrences of them remind us these are important concepts. They occurred so very often in the Word of God. God only needs to say something once, but if He uses the Word this many times, doesn't it highlight that He wanted Israel to understand it? And He certainly would wish you and me to understand some important things as well. Again, I've only chosen a couple of occurrences. The very first time that word occurs is with regard to, of course, Cain and Abel, wherein each one offered unto God, but one was acceptable and one wasn't. 
And we remember what Cain did in light of the fact God was more pleased with what his brother offered than he. Not only that, in Hebrews 10, 18, what about that great offering that's available by way of Jesus Christ for your benefit and mine? Today, might I invite you to study with me about sacrifices. As we develop some of these thoughts, there are several ideas, and many of them are simple but profound. Let's begin by presenting it like this. You'll notice on this slide before us, I chose to, in fact, use a particular set of ideas to at least prompt our thinking, to motivate us to consider some matters in light of this text in Romans chapter 12. You and I are so very accustomed to considering sacrifices as the Old Testament describes them. In fact, much of the book of Leviticus, it seems, surrounds the commandments and, yea, the description given about those sacrifices which God expected, yea, He demanded the children of Israel make. You may notice on that list, He commanded relative to the burnt offering. He commanded relative to the meat offering. He commanded relative to the, to the peace offering to the sin offering and to the trespass offering. And when I say commanded, there were circumstances in which God commanded that those individuals make offerings of these ways and matters to Him. Sometimes it involved a lamb, sometimes a goat, sometimes a bullock, sometimes a ram. God made specific and very directed statements relative to all of these things. May I suggest to you in light of all of them that we have a number of examples of the Old Testament of where those individuals did in fact make those offerings. Perhaps one very abundant example would be the one in the days of Solomon. In 1 Kings 8 verse 63 near the close of that chapter, the record is given of the occasion on which the temple was dedicated. That very ornate extravagant structure that Solomon presided over the construction of it. 22,000 bullocks, or oxen rather, and 120,000 sheep all made offering on that occasion. Maybe all of that prompts us to notice as we move forward and think about the consideration of those sacrifices. There are a number of passages, not the least of which would be these two. Could I direct your attention to 1 Chronicles 16.29? Perhaps a small amount of preparation would be in order. David's the author. David's the writer on that occasion. And David was many times described as one who had a desire to approach God. And he was described as a man after God's own heart. And yet as this particular situation comes before us, it reads, Give unto the Lord the glory due unto His name. Bring an offering. Come before Him. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Did you notice with me the, the structure, the sequence of a passage like that one? First, God is worthy of glory. His name is mighty. His person is great. He is worthy of all the glory with which you and I could seek to heap upon Him. He is that remarkable. He's that awesome. Surely you realize it went on to say, in light of the great glory that God has, He says, bring an offering. That's why they were to bring offerings. It wasn't just to consume time, a few elements out of the week. They were to bring an offering because God deserved it. He was worthy of the glory attached to the reality of the offering of that matter. He then said, bring an offering and come before Him. 
if one weren't properly equipped, if you please, one shouldn't have expected that God would be a ready audience for your coming. You had to make ready to come before Him appropriately, and that involved sacrifice. Surely, in light of those things, you may notice that sentiment is echoed in Psalm 96. Almost word for word, many of the same thoughts are presented to you and me. Maybe as that slide comes to its close, you and I then might be quick to make this transition. As great as those Old Testament sacrifices were, they were an imperfect system. They were suitable for those of that day, but even at their best, they lacked the fullness and greatness which was available through the nature of what was predicted. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 10, you notice in verse number 1 that the comers could never be made perfect by the nature of those old sacrifices. And three verses later in Hebrews 10 verse number 4, it was not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sin. So surely you and I might note as great as those sacrifices were, they were imperfect. They looked for something better than they. No wonder as we close that slide, let's now move into our lesson text. Are you and I still required to make sacrifice today? If so, in what way? Does the New Testament in fact develop this thought? The answer is yes, that it does. In fact, you'll notice on that slide with me, you and I still are under consideration of sacrifice. Let's then study for the remainder of our lesson today what that involves, what goes into it. First of all, on this particular slide, let's make a statement of placement of the passage in the Roman letter. It's always, of course, important to appreciate the context of a given section of Scripture because therein we can often find such a great deal of assistance and help as we look into the interpretation of that. The first several chapters of the Roman letter present before us an amazingly profound understanding of surely what God is, who we are, and what's involved in coming to Him. Chapter 1, the Gentiles are guilty of sin. Chapter 2, the Jews are guilty of sin. He summarizes those two chapters. And when we get to chapter 3, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. You'll notice 13 verses earlier, there's none righteous, no, not one. And thus, the Jew are in need of a Savior, the Gentile needed a Savior, and thanks be unto God, the Savior had come. In chapter 4, the powerful example of Abraham is listed. A man of faith who himself... Believe God and it was counted to him for righteousness. And therefore, as those thoughts are developed in the fourth chapter of the Roman letter, that's used to identify what's involved today in being pleasing to him. It is a system of obedient faith. A system in which we follow the instructions he has given and therefore, in light of that faithful obedience, he in fact considers not imputing our, our wickednesses to us, but forgiven through Christ. Surely in light of that, you notice the blessings then available in chapter 8. Oh, how great they are. It is at that point, verses 9 through 11, or rather chapters 9 through 11, describe then the inclusion of the Gentiles. Those who were once considered outcasts, and yet they have been grafted in, allowed by God the opportunity also of salvation. May I invite you to notice the way that chapter 11 closes. It is one of the great anthems of the New Testament. 
Romans 11, beginning in verse 33. It reads like this, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, or who hath been His counselor? Or who hath first given to Him? And it shall be recompensed unto Him again. For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. Now notice through these first 11 chapters in Romans, Paul through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit had highlighted the need for a Savior. The impressiveness of the gospel and what it affords. For isn't it still true in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. But you'll notice in those verses we just read, of Him, through Him, to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. With that statement reverberating in mind, notice what the very next statement is. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The movement through that seems amazingly reminiscent of some of those Old Testament ones we noted earlier. In fact, you'll notice on that slide, because of the greatness of God, you and I then have to come to Him with an offering. We can't flippantly or trivially think we can approach God that He will accept it. In light of God's greatness, Romans 11, verses 33 and 34 and 35, you then notice verse 1 of chapter 12, I beseech you. Paul then has a request, or he has an urgency, an admonition for these Roman brethren. No wonder as you come to the bottom of that slide then, why don't we ask some pertinent questions? This discussion of sacrifices today, this consideration, so who is to make sacrifice? How is it to be done? When is it to be offered? What is involved? All of those are great questions. Thankfully, as you and I noted that passage a moment ago, the answers are given. Why don't we proceed to look at them one by one? As you come to the top of this slide, first of all, chapter 12 begins like this. I beseech you therefore, brethren. This Roman letter was addressed to the church in Rome, Romans 1 verse 7. It was addressed to those that were the saints, those who had in fact had their sins washed away by the blood of the Lamb. Romans 6 verses 3 and following tell us that they had understood the fact of what Paul preached concerning that topic. They were buried with Christ in baptism and therefore they had been raised to walk in newness of life. With those descriptions, Paul writing to them said, I beseech you therefore, brethren, as Paul discussed these matters, writing to these brethren, here's some things I would ask you to notice. They were under obligation to make some offerings. Let's continue in verse 1. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. Paul makes immediate reference, doesn't he, to the mercies of God. 
how sweet it is to contemplate the richness of God's mercy. In fact, in Ephesians 2 verse 4, that very thought is expressed. God is rich in mercy. And aren't we thankful for that? He, in fact, extends to us the marvelous matter of salvation and grace wherein we never deserved it. Romans 5.8 says, But God commendeth His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You and I were the ones that violated His will. We were the ones that transgressed His law. And yet He, through the nature of the Son, extended to us the greatness of the opportunity of salvation. May we note in that life that this richness of God's mercy is an often mentioned matter in the Word of God. In Lamentations 3.22, that richness is described. He extends great compassion to those of that day and you and me as well. In light of those observations, notice with me what comes next. That word mercy as it involves compassion, as it involves the idea of the pities it extends. May I invite you to notice, this is a description of what is involved in approaching God. We stated earlier in the Old Testament, they were to bring an offering and thus approach Him in the matter of worship. Notice with me what is said in verse 1 here. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. That word reasonable, some translations use the word spiritual. It's your spiritual service, my friend, as a Christian to offer these sacrifices described in this passage. Are you and I doing it as faithfully as we ought? Do we have these sentiments, these considerations in mind? You'll notice in light of this duty that's ours to offer these, we've now learned who it is that's to offer them. Let's look at the next question. What about what is to be offered? Verse number 1 again, please. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Your bodies, yours and mine, we are determined on this occasion as we look at what the Holy Spirit has declared. We've got an offering to make, my friend. Your body and mine. Now immediately, perhaps, it comes to us to ponder. What's meant as he describes the offering of the body? Well, could I ask you to consider the following? First of all, you and I know there are those in our world who are confused and perplexed, and they will set themselves aflame and think that they're doing homage and offering to some deity, some god. That's not what Paul's talking about. Notice he says it's a living sacrifice. Those animals of the Old Testament were slaughtered and then put on the altar of burnt offering. This is not exactly like that, for this is a living sacrifice. And isn't that exciting? You and I as Christians, we offer living sacrifice, and it's our bodies. As we offer these things to God, notice this development. He identifies later in the verse, holy, acceptable unto God. May I submit to you, this is a great challenge, and it's an ongoing demand. Each and every occasion and every day, do you and I give consideration, is my body, is the manner of conduct of my life and the behavior, is it an offering that's holy and acceptable unto God? It's a great question, isn't it? It's challenging. 
No wonder that development leads us to note one of those last comments on that slide. This whole notion of holiness. After all, that's the way in which your behavior and your conduct and mine is to be. It's a living sacrifice. That word holy literally means to be consecrated, to be set apart, to be dedicated to the cause and the purpose for which it is affirmed. What about your life and mine? Someone looks at your behavior or your activities, can they immediately dictate and tell that that's a person dedicated unto the God whom he loves? That's an individual whose life is an open and marvelous presentation of sacrifice to God. As I mentioned, there's much, much included in verses like this one, isn't there? Living sacrifices. You and I probably can imagine that those individuals of the Old Testament bring an offering like a lamb or a goat or perhaps a bullock, and they perhaps would watch the high priest take the life of that lamb and put it there on the altar, and then the person would leave and go back home. Your sacrifice and mine is richer more profound, in many ways far more demanding than that. It's an ongoing living sacrifice. No wonder in light of those things, look at some of those verses at the bottom that you and I might at least consider in passing. This concept of holiness. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet tis not I, but Christ liveth in me, for the life that I now live in the flesh... I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. As Paul described the direction of his life, he affirmed he was crucified with Christ and therefore he then lived. How so? He lived in that ongoing directed fashion to God. That's just one sampling of a number of others that might be mentioned. In 2 Corinthians 5 verses 14 and 15, on that occasion, Paul writing said, The love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead, and that he died for all, that they which live should not live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Again, the question, what about the living sacrifice that you and I are offering to God? Is it careless? Do we allow days to pass without giving much consideration to that living sacrifice demanded of us? No wonder those things lead us to some additional questions. Consider this with me, please. We've noted before that those in the Old Testament, there were specific occasions on which they offered. How often are you and I to make our offering? We mentioned in passing a moment ago, Look at the verb tenses that are used by the Holy Spirit on this occasion. I beseech you, a present tense verb, that you present your bodies. That word present, as you would consider it here again, very easy to appreciate a present tense application. In other words, this is not a one-time offering. It's not just, let's say, once a week. It's not even once a month or once a day. This is an ongoing demand on the part of God to you and me. How are you and I doing, Christian friend? Are you and I presenting, offering to God this living sacrifice that's demanded of us? Remember, the reason for it is God's greatness, the absolute awesomeness of Him. These verses, perhaps, are worthy of your consideration and mine. In 1 Corinthians 6, 
verse number 20. We know that God owns us, our mind and our body alike. Then isn't it fitting and isn't it right to appreciate the offering of this to Him? Surely it is. And one last thought. Luke chapter 12, verse 2. On that occasion, the Lord challenged the Pharisees rather notably when He brought to their attention the fact that there may be things done here in secret and others may be unaware of it. But He said, there's coming a moment and a day when in fact all shall be revealed and made known. My friend, God knows everything about you and me already. We can choose then to live in direction to Him and honor Him as the great God and our Creator or we can rebelliously and foolishly refuse that. If we live in rebellion to Him, we understand we aren't making a living sacrifice, and therefore whatever is done is not pleasing and acceptable to Him. Maybe that thought challenges us in one last way on this slide. How is the offering to be made? Could I ask you to notice the way verse 1 ends and then on into verse number 2? How is this offering to be made? May I suggest that in the Old Testament, those offerings in many ways were rather carefully prescribed. They were told when to offer, what to offer, and how to offer it. Is any less to be considered in the New Testament? And we've already learned our offering is to be holy and acceptable to God. It is to be, of course, a description of the way we live our life, our body. Could I ask, what are you doing in regard to your body and mine? Now, I realize there are many considerations about the body. There are the things we put into it. There are things that we do to the exterior of it. There are other matters that relate to, to the safety and consideration of it. May I ask us to consider, what are we doing in light of that living sacrifice? Should I want then to conduct or at least allow the behavior of that body to be in a way that is detrimental to the influence of Christianity? Anything that would deter or inhibit the great marvelous mercy of Christ should have no part in the body. It ought to be left aside for this body is to be a living sacrifice. Didn't Paul teach in 1 Corinthians 3 and 6 that this body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Through the nature of the Word, the Holy Spirit dwells in you and me, and as such, our bodies should be an open presentation of that which is the holy and great will of God. As far as this how to offer, you and I know that there's a great deal of influence pushed in your direction and mine, influence that's very negative and quite frankly motivated by materialistic matters of the world. Reminds us of James 4 verse 4, doesn't it? Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. They in Rome knew very well about the pressures of the world. And Paul warned them on this occasion, don't you be conformed to it. But rather, in a transformed process, allow your mind to become a refurbished, renewed matter that's directed to things holy things acceptable to God. Isn't it true then that you and I today still not conform to the world? For if we are, we're the enemy of God. If we are, we directly distance ourselves from that which is the holy will of God. Paul, as he wrote in Galatians 1 verses 9 and 10, he spoke on that occasion, did he not, that 
he chose not to serve the things of men, but rather the things of God. You and I then choose to offer in a very directed fashion. The verb tenses that Paul used in verse number 2 are verb tenses that, again, speak to something very interesting. It's not at all surprising. You'll notice that these matters are presented in a way that is descriptive of personal choice. The world cannot force you and me to go its way, but rather by our own choice, we choose to agree with it. Those are the tenses associated with the nature of how this is presented to us. And so tomorrow, you and I have got a choice. Tuesday and the other days of the week, the choice rests with you and me. There is no temptation taking you but such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you're able. But also with a temptation will provide a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. And so no temptation you and I face, no allurement, no enticement will be overwhelmingly greater than what you and I can bear and what we can resist. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you, we're told in James chapter 4. Isn't that a beautiful and powerful sentiment? This matter of a living sacrifice, the descriptions one by one that we've considered bring us to these particular matters as well. These particulars that will close this part and also uh, close our lesson this morning. These living sacrifices, this transforming of your mind and mine. The devil has been a master throughout the years. In fact, since the days of the Garden of Eden onward, a master at causing individuals to look with enticement and with great interest upon what takes place around them, to want to be considered the norm to be considered approved by those around us. It didn't work in the Old Testament. Thou shalt not follow a multitude to do evil, Exodus 23.2. Didn't Jesus, in fact, remind us in the New Testament, in Matthew chapter 7, verses, three and four, verses 13 and 14, He said, Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth into life, and few there be that find it. There is thus a wide approach, one that's relatively easy to travel, but there's also a much narrower, much more difficult and challenging pathway, and he said that's the one that leads to life. Few there be that find it. May I submit, living sacrifice is a critical component and a powerful part of these matters. As far as your life and mine, how often does the New Testament encourage us, remind us, demand of us to have a life described like Titus 2, verse 14? You and I have a different worldview. We have a different mindset. It's not like those in the world because we're not happy with this place. We're headed to heaven and we're determined to get there. As such... We read in Titus 2, verses 11 and following, It's true God's grace has appeared to all men, but it teaches us something. It teaches us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Does that describe you and me? A life filled with that which is holy, acceptable, soberly, righteously, and godly. 
as your life and mine then is one that's filled with those good works and we are a people of His possession. Those last two verses. John 15 verses 18 and following, Jesus Himself said something rather notable. Didn't He say, The world has hated me and it will hate you too. We shouldn't expect the world is going to applaud and clap. They're not going to like our choices and they're not going to appreciate our approach and they're not going to uphold our hands and encourage us. The devil will ensure that. Rather, it will be a hard thing. There may well be insults and great challenges, but we understand Jesus said that's the way it's going to be. Surely, 2 Timothy 3.12 then joins in that presentation as it says, All that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. That takes us back to our lesson text. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. God's will will always be done. God's will, as the sovereign and great ruler of this universe and all that's in it, He, in fact, is such that we desire, we wish that His will be done. Did Jesus pray, Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven? Matthew 6, verses 8 and following. Here, you and I notice, prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Is the sacrifice of your life and mine a hallmark representation of that good and acceptable and perfect will of God? I pray that it is. I trust that it is. May we all strive to live in such a way that that would be said of us. The question then is this. What about the sacrifice that you're offering to God by the way you live? Is it a sacrifice that is holy? Is it a sacrifice that's appropriate? Is it one that God is pleased with? Does He accept it? If not, today you have an opportunity to make the changes that God demands of you. He sent His blessed Son in order that He would die on a cross for you and for me. Yea, for all. 1 John 2, verses 2 and 3. But sadly, not all will accept that offer. Some, due to any number of things, will rebel against it and refuse to submit to it. And how tragic. Surely, this closing slide brings us to this. As those that are Christians, it's our privilege to offer spiritual sacrifices to God. 1 Peter 2, verses 5 and 6. Today, what about your offering? Is it described in this way we've seen in Romans 12? If so, may you continue to live that way and may your life be that living sacrifice that continues to be such a powerful influence for good. But if your life is lacking, if your life is not described in the way we've studied this morning, why not, with perhaps a proverbial tear in your eye, realize what God did for you at Calvary? He purchased your salvation, an opportunity for you to be ransomed from a devil's hell. But the choice is now yours. Will you accept His offer or not? It may be there's someone in the audience who's never rendered initial obedience to the gospel. You've never begun to offer those sacrifices on behalf of the Master. If today we could be of assistance to you, the gospel plan of salvation still reads just like it did 20 centuries ago. 
You must believe in Jesus, repent of your sins, confess the greatness of His name as a Son of God, and be baptized. If you have become a member of the Lord's body, and maybe you've begun to offer sacrifices in a living fashion and did so with such greatness. However, maybe over the course of time you've become lackluster, you've become, quite frankly, uncommitted. Why not come back to your first love today? Just like Simon in Acts chapter 8, we would pray to God on your behalf that He would forgive you of those sins. If they've been of a public character, don't you want to ask for the prayers of brethren to approach God on your behalf? Today, if we could be of assistance to anyone in the audience in either of these ways, or simply as by way of a prayer for strength or encouragement, we'd be delighted to do it. We're going to stand in just a moment and sing this hymn of encouragement. May I again ask, what about the living sacrifice of your life? Is it acceptable? If it's not, make it so while together we stand and while we sing.